Uh, welcome to the Cato Institute. I'm Mark Calabria, our Director of Financial Regulation Studies here at the Cato Institute, and uh, also happy to be our moderator of uh, today's discussion. Now, I had put together a long introduction on the sort of history of the Federal Reserve and National Monetary Commission and such, but sadly, uh, Congress is doing its will, and a vote will interrupt us later, which means the good congressman will need to leave early, probably around 440. So with that in mind, you will have to hear my remarks some other time. Uh, but before I do turn it over to Congressman, I do want to recognize and thank uh, Laura Odata, who at Cato really played a very big role in making this happen, uh, as well as Shauna Tihan and the uh, Congressman staff. So again, want to give credit where credit is due and turn over the podium to the Congressman. Great. Mr. Chairman. Mark, thank you very much. Thanks for the invitation to speak uh, at Cato. Um, you know, what I appreciate so much about this organization is that uh, you um, – you wield uh, spirited battles for the principles of economic freedom and a limited constitutional government. And while the policies of the current White House have been uh, troubling, especially the revelations over the last five days, I think it's awakening many more Americans just to the dangers of an unrestrained government. A uh, big government can't help itself. Uh, at the end of the day, uh, its size, its power, its scope, ultimately tends to turn itself into a breeding ground for political abuse and, I think, harmful uh, experimentation. And now with new story breaking about the enforcement cudgel of the IRS being brought to bear on political enemies and the Justice Department's wiretapping the Associated Press, um, clearly a line has been crossed. And I hope the public uh, is paying attention. And I say all that to say the work that Cato does in pursuit of economic freedom limited government is more important today uh, than ever. And for years, Cato's been a leader in the debate on monetary policy, which I have an interest in as chairman of the Joint Economic Committee. Uh, I commend President John Allison for his recent commentary titled The Federal Reserve's Unsound Policies in the Cato Policy Report. It ought to be a required reading for policymakers and lawmakers uh, in Washington. So again, I'm honored to be here today. I want to frame uh, why we're talking about monetary policy uh, in the broader context of what I think is the most critical economic challenge that America faces right now, and that's the growth gap. Uh, in the near term, the growth gap is the difference in economic performance between this recovery and the average of the recoveries since World War II. Indeed, this recovery is the worst recovery uh, since World War II. And as a result of this gap, we are missing $1.2 trillion in real GDP and missing 4.1 million private sector jobs that we would have if an average recovery had occurred, just average, not a, not a great recovery, just a middle of the road, C grade, nothing to brag about recovery. That growth gap is significant, but it is growing larger. And what's now, I think, even more troubling is that more economists are beginning to believe uh, that there may be a new normal, that America's uh, uh, ability to grow in our economy has been permanently diminished. Recently, the Congressional Budget Office uh, reduced its estimate for future growth in potential real GDP from 3.2% to 2.2%. 3.2%, by the way, is the average of the last 50 years. And you say, well, what's the one percentage point difference? 
may not sound like much, but it's huge. Uh, over the next five decades, just a 1% uh, growth gap is the difference between a $50 trillion economy and an $80 trillion economy. Put it this way, at the end of 50 years, the growth gap will be missing an economy larger than the one we have today. Moreover, when you look at Washington's ability to pay its bills, a 1% growth gap means that we will have, this is a big number, $97 trillion less in federal revenue over those next five decades. Put it in perspective, that covers obviously the national debt we have today, but also takes a significant step toward the unfunded liabilities in Social Security, Medicare. So bottom line is economic growth matters in a significant way. We started this effort uh, at the Joint Economic Committee as we worked to revitalize it, turn it into a free market to think tank uh, on the economy, on, on uh, the budget, uh, on, uh, on um, uh, right-sizing this government. And one of the predictions that caught my eye as we began to lead the committee some years ago was sort of the, the thinking that the, um, the 19th century was Britain's century, that the 20th century was ours, but the 21st century belonged to China. Well, I don't subscribe to that view. Um, but if we want the United States to remain the strongest economy in the world through the 21st century, over the next 100 years, we have to close the growth gap. Um, and focusing on monetary policy can take us a long way toward closing that gap. Uh, as you know, most members of Congress focus on fiscal policy, and I did for many years as well. It's important. And, but monetary policy is generally regarded as sort of an unruly stepchild that, that few tend to deal with. My view is, as important as fiscal policy is, it's not enough to ensure a second American century this century. Uh, Pro-growth tax cuts in 2001, 2003, as important as they are, didn't stave off the Great Recession in 2008. The Keynesian stimulus since 2008 uh, financial crisis has left us behind, far behind, other, other post-war uh, recoveries. And there's no question I strongly support, in fact, we've introduced legislation reducing federal spending by a quarter relative to the size of our economy this decade, making entitlement programs like Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, financially solvent over the long term, enacting a pro-growth tax reform, those are all critical to our economy. In fact, I would say right now in this age of uncertainty are absolutely critical for closing the near-term growth gap. But these reforms aren't enough. Um, they're not sufficient to close the longer-term growth gap. If we get monetary policy right, and our, our economy will have the wind at its back. Get it wrong, and our economy will face headwinds that good fiscal, balanced regulatory policies, right-sizing the size of government, uh, may not be able to overcome. Two-minute look back um, on monetary history. Uh, early in our nation's history, the first Congress delegated its constitutional monetary policy to a central bank. Uh, building on the precedent of the first and the second banks of the United States, Congress created the Federal Reserve in 1913. And they did that for two for two purposes, to provide an elastic currency within, within the context of the gold standard and to serve as a lender of last resort to the financial system. 
And while the early Fed was successful in providing a, an elastic currency, in fact, they eliminated the frequent uh, seasonal financial panics of the 19th century, the Fed failed to perform its role as a lender of last resort between 1929 and 1933, leading to unnecessary bank failures that intensified the Great Depression. Moving forward in time, after President Nixon broke the last link between the U.S. dollar and gold in August 1971, then-Fed Chairman Arthur Burns pursued a discretionary and an interventionist monetary policy known as Go Stop, because literally that's what it was, Go Stop, that caused rising inflation and economic instability. And then, in a political response to stagflation, Congress gave the Fed a dual mandate, assigning equal weight to achieving stable prices and full employment. What followed then during the 1980s and 1990s were Chairman Paul Volcker and Alan Greenspan, who essentially conducted monetary policy as if the Federal Reserve had a single mandate for price stability. Volcker and Greenspan recognized that price stability, protecting the value of the dollar over time, was a ne necessary prerequisite for maximum economic output and jobs. We know the monetary policy can only have a direct positive effect on employment in very short temporary spurts, usually at the cost of future economic growth and employment. But in contrast, using monetary policies to achieve stable prices, to protect the purchasing power of the dollar over time, that's absolutely the best foundation, the best environment for maximizing growing our U.S. economy and growing employment over time. Looking at the great moderation from 1983 to 2000, Chairman Volcker inaugurated what became known as great moderation, which the Fed, with few exceptions, transitioned toward a more rules-based monetary um, policy that had two characteristics. One, you had implicit targeting of the inflation rate over the medium term. And it had the implicit use of the Taylor rule, which generally directs the Fed to increase the federal funds rate as inflationary forces intensify and lower the rate as inflationary forces decrease. Well, this rules-based approach to monetary policy created a long period of favorable economic performance. Uh, macroeconomic volatility decreased. Uh, we had two robust economic expansions, one uh, that lasted 31 quarters, the second that lasted 40 quarters, and the unemployment rate trended steadily downward. By contrast, you look at the go-stop monetary policy of the 70s, the longest economic expansion of that period was a fraction of that, only 10 quarters. Well, as we know, uh, the confluence of the bursting tech stock bubble, uh, the September 11th terrorist attacks, and the 2001 recession, which sparked deflationary concern, finally moved the Fed away from a rules-based monetary policy. At that point, the Fed reduced its target rate to 1.82%. It held the rate too low for too long, and it helped fuel the housing bubble which peaked in the summer of 2006. And to date, most policymakers have largely focused on the microeconomic uh, causes of the housing bubble, the financial crisis, and subsequently uh, the global recession. But we ought to be paying more attention to the macroeconomic cause, which is 
the Fed's excessively easy monetary policy between 2002 and 2005. My point is this contributing factor, the Fed was wholly avoidable had the Fed simply followed well-established norms, like the Taylor Rule, rather than engage in discretionary policies. Since 2008, um, I can say that this because there's a new Star Trek movie in the theaters. But since 2008, monetary policy has gone into discretionary and interventionist hyperdrive. Beginning in 2008, the Fed invoked the employment half of its dual mandate for the first time ever to justify its extraordinary actions. In doing so, the Fed explicitly deviated from the view that monetary policy could contribute to achieving full employment if and only if the Fed focused solely on price stability. All subsequent FOMC policy statements have prominently mentioned this dual mandate, the full employment half of the dual mandate, using it as a justification for QE1, QE2, Operation Twist, and QE3, which is now known as uh, QE Infinity. Under QE1, you may recall the Fed began purchasing federal agency debt, federal agency residential mortgage-backed securities, and long-term treasuries. And through the RMBS, the Fed was allocating credit toward the housing market, the finance market, to lower home uh, mortgage interest rates in the hope that refinancing activity would increase discretionary income and consumer purchases. And while QE1 helped to boost stock prices, its effect on the real economy was very small. In the late fall of 2010, the Fed embarked upon QE2 with increased purchases of long-term treasuries. The following, that followed the next year with the FOMC announcing its communications channel through which it advised the market that low interest rates would remain low through certain dates. Then we saw Operation Twist that came in the fall of 2011, which extended the average duration of the Fed's Treasury holdings. It didn't, unlike the other quantitative easing, it didn't affect the size of the Fed's balance sheet. So you, at the, that point, given the ineffectiveness of this discretionary and interventionist monetary policy by the Fed, there was some hope of a return to a rules-based policy when in January 2012, the FOMC issued what was called a Statement of Longer-Run Goals and Policy Strategy, in which, while it set an official inflation target of 2%, the FOMC talked about monetary policy in this regard. Quote, said the maximum level of employment is largely determined by non-monetary factors. Non-monetary factors that affect the structure and dynamics of the labor market. These factors may change over time and may not be directly measurable. Consequently, it would not be appropriate to specify a fixed goal for employment. And then they went further to talk about uh, they would be informed by assessments of the maximum level of employment and recognize that those measurements weren't necessarily certain and would be subject to revision. But the point is, they specifically stated it's not appropriate to specify a fixed goal for employment. Nonetheless, any hope uh, that this statement represented a shift by the FOMC uh, quickly faded with the Federal Reserve's adoption of QE Infinity in December. It remains very unclear 
how providing additional liquidity through yet another round of quantitative easing can accelerate economic growth. Moreover, as noted by John Allison uh, in his recent piece, the significant expansion of the monetary base, in other words, printing money, is surely creating misinvestments in the economy. And he's dead right. Then you may remember in a confusing shift that contradicted the Fed's statement 11 months earlier that a fixed goal for employment wouldn't be appropriate, the Fed shifted from its date-oriented um, communications channel to an employment rate-based position of 6.5%, less than a year after said setting those employment targets would not be appropriate because you can't control it. They did exactly that. And I know many uh, are asking, what are the benefits of quantitative easing? Fed officials argue that Q Q uh, quantitative easing is responsible for rising asset prices. However, Martin Feldstein, the chairman of the Council of Economic Advisors under President Reagan, argues that while QE certainly has played a limited role in rising asset prices, it is earnings uh, that are the most important determinant of stock prices. So whatever its short-term benefits may be, quantitative easing poses great risks over time, and that is where our concern lies. One, it creates a risk of creating asset price bubbles, which we know the dangers of that. Uh, it provides that current excess reserves on the Fed's balance sheet will be a fuel for future inflation. And so far, we've not had that inflation due to the desire of banks to maintain large reserves at the Fed and a shortage of credit-worthy borrowers. But when economic growth accelerates, banks will use their excess reserves to make loans, creating inflation unless the Fed acts swiftly to reduce the size of its balance sheet. And finally, the Fed's bloated balance sheet creates a perverse incentive for what is called financial repression, a term that is getting more attention because of the historical nature of the, what the Fed has been doing. In the financial repression, when countries accumulate excessive debt, um, government debt relative to the size of their economy, they tend to engage in financial repression. They channel the savings of their citizens toward government debt to lower government interest rates. They channel the private sector capital, in effect, to mask the, the cost and the price uh, of their government debt. Since 2009, the Fed has purchased the equivalent of 24% of all newly issued treasuries, 24%. Economic growth and inflationary pressure would normally cause the Fed to raise its targets rate for federal funds and sell treasuries. But selling treasuries while interest rates are rising would force the Fed to recognize losses on its balance sheet, potentially giving the Fed negative equity. The uncertainty arising from a technical bankruptcy would likely cause the Fed to avoid this outcome uh, at any cost. Instead, the Fed would likely boost the interest rate that it had paid banks on their reserves and increase reserve requirements. These actions subsequently would cap economic growth by limiting bank loans to U.S. businesses and families. And the net effect would be financial repression, redirecting credit from the private sector to the U.S. Treasury through the Fed to help contain federal um, interest costs. So what are we to do about this? Well, we have worked hard at the Joint Economic Committee 
to uh, introduce two solutions uh, to this, uh, one short and one longer term. In the first one, I want to talk about Centennial Monetary Commission. The Fed is 100 years old. It, is, it has come through a financial crisis and is, and is um, providing uh, historically interventionist uh, uh, actions on its part. This is exactly the right time to look backward, to examine the Fed's role over the past 100 years, and to make recommendations on what the role the Fed should be going forward. The Centennial Monetary Commission provides this review in a very bipartisan way. It isn't the first time. A century ago, uh, a commission just like this, established by Congress, the National Monetary Commission, devised the framework for the Federal Reserve. Moving forward 36 years ago, it's been that long, Congress established the dual mandate. So U.S. monetary policy is long overdue for a thoughtful, constructive review. And that review would examine how the Federal Reserve performed in, the term, in terms of economic growth for the country, employment, prices, and financial stability over time. It would evaluate the various operational regimes for conducting monetary policy, including the discretion that's used in determining monetary policy, a targeting of price levels, inflation rates, nominal gross domestic product. It would examine the use of monetary policy rules and the gold standard. And finally, what the commission would do would recommend a course for monetary policy going forward, including the legislative mandate, the operational uh, regime, uh, the types of securities used in open market operations, and address transparency issues that are growing. Membership would be brutally bipartisan, uh, six Republicans, six Democrats, half from within Congress, half of private citizens, and two non-voting members, the Fed and the Treasury. And this bipartisan review of our nation's monetary policy, I think, could result in valuable recommendations for monetary reforms going forward. I think it's important because I think some, I, I sometimes get the impression on Capitol Hill that um, people really don't want to talk too much about the Fed and monetary reform. It's sort of moved over and, and uh, sort of limited uh, or dismissed as much as possible. Um, I think it's important to put it on the front burner. I think it's important to review it independently, objectively, in fact, have a, uh, a contest of ideas on a level playing field about what the role of the Fed should be going forward. And, I, and I, what I've seen back home is that since the financial crisis, I, uh, I'm sort of known back home for doing more than 50 public town hall meetings a year. It's how I hold myself accountable to those I work for and it gives you a chance to connect, listen, have people vent at you, and that happens a lot these days. But what I've noticed is that since the financial crisis, that average people, just normal people, will raise their hands at my town halls and ask, who is the Federal Reserve? And why can they do what they're doing? And it seems to me lawmakers are doing that today as well, asking what is the role of the Fed? And what should we tell them their role ought to be going forward? So the Centennial Monetary Commission, I think the time is exactly right to have this constructive, thoughtful discussion. The second bill really uh, creates the reforms, I think, that this National Centennial Monetary Commission, I think this bill reflects where I think it may well end up. May not, uh, 
you know, in this contest of free ideas and, and discussion, it may not. But the Sound Dollar Act, which we introduced earlier this year with 51 original House sponsors, is my vision for where monetary policy should be, one, to close the growth gap, and two, to ensure the 21st century is another American century. Um, experience suggests, the reason I'm confident that an objective view of the Fed and its policies will arrive at the right place, is that the Fed does best when it has a clear mandate for rules-based monetary policy coupled with operational independence. In other words, the mandate is set clearly and they operate under rules free from political interference. This is exactly what would happen under the Sound Dollar Act, which has been introduced, by the way, in the Senate by Senator Mike Lee of Utah with Senator John Cornyn and Marco Rubio as the original co-sponsors. The Sound Dollar Act would do six th th things, three of the major, three of them uh, helpful. It would, it would reform the Fed's mandate, changing it from a dual mandate to a single mandate for achieving, and here's a quote from the bill, achieving long-term price stability in order to achieve the maximum sustainable rate of output growth and the maximum level of employment through time. That's important because this is not a false choice between jobs and prices. Truth is stable prices the sound dollar are exactly what create the best foundation for job growth over the long term. And in achieving price stability, this bill goes further. It, it will require the Fed to monitor a broad range of assets as well, beyond just goods and services, including gold and the foreign exchange value of the dollar in order to avoid future asset bubbles. And the idea here is that we would have the Fed more deliberately monitoring asset prices to help them identify incipient price bubbles before they inflate. The legislation doesn't tell them how to deal with them and how to address them. That depends on the circumstances, and it would be left to the discretion of the Fed. But it would expand uh, that monitoring uh, of, by the Fed and expand its, its reporting to Congress uh, in those asset areas, which I think is extremely important because if you ask many lawmakers in Congress if they saw all this happening, they will tell you privately no, they did not. Even as policies were creating um, exact dynamics for that. The Sound Dollar Act would also require the Fed to articulate its lender of last resort policy. Um, this role is just critical for the Fed, um, for banks preventing unnecessary failures of solvent but illiquid institutions limiting the spread of financial contagion and minimizing the impact of a financial crisis on the economy, that's critical. Yet, I think the Fed has failed over its 100-year history to articulate a lender of last resort policy. And so it's created now an expectation for bailouts or for political decisions. The sound dollar would also uh, allow the Fed to invest only going forward, treasuries, repos, and reverse repos, except uh, during emergencies. The goal of this is our belief that the Fed should not pick winners and losers by allocating credit, but should invest solely in U.S. treasuries, except during a grave emergency. And after that emergency is over, non-treasury assets would be liquidated 
in, a, in an efficient and orderly manner. I think this is important for two reasons. One, it's important for the housing market because since 2008, as you know, the Fed's been investing broadly in mortgage-backed securities. This poses long-term a threat to housing because if someday the Fed, and they must, quickly unwind these assets to combat inflation, it'll be devastating to housing. So my legislation provides for a slow and orderly liquidation of the non-treasury assets to ensure no harm comes to the housing market. More importantly, when you're allocating credit, you're subsidizing. And subsidies die hard in Washington, D.C. It invites the political independence the Fed so often um, pushes back against. So if you don't want to be interfered with, then don't, make, don't allocate credit within the market because you invite exactly that type of interference. Signed Dollar Act would also increase a voting membership in the Federal Open Market Committee to include all regional bank presidents that would move the release of the transcripts from five to three years. The goal here, honestly, uh, is to ensure the entire economy is represented in important decision-making at the FOMC. I would like to break that Washington-New York nexus that I think dominates too much of that decision-making. The goal is not to create an uh, open market committee that, um, that has one philosophy or the other. In fact, if you, as I have, visit with almost all of our regional presidents, you'll see a broad range of, uh, of views. But regional presidents are very close to the economies that they represent. They have a very good feel for where their economy is moving, what are the roadblocks to it. As well, they have independent staffs, economic staff. So what happens is that they tend to, ex to, to uh, uh, become experts in certain areas of monetary policy, regulation, um, uh, GSEs, uh, the broad range. And I think it's important for all those presidents to be voting each time in making those critical decisions. And the timely release of transcripts is my belief that information today moves in a second. Having five years uh, for release of those transcripts is way too long. Three years hits the right balance because it ensures there is a candid conversation within those meetings. If people aren't, in effect, reading their notes into history or building a legacy. But it ensures that uh, a um, Federal Reserve chairman the transcripts of those meetings would be available to policymakers and senators uh, as they look at second or third terms of uh, Fed chairman. I think uh, that information is, uh, is critical. Conclude with this. I just think, and I hope you agree, the time is right for monetary reform, for getting it right. And if we do it, it is the foundation for economic growth. So let's unite. Let's work together. Uh, um, for a workable, rules-based monetary reform. Bring it to the front burner. Let's have this discussion. Mark? Thank you. Um, Glad to take some questions. Well, let me, uh, let me again emphasize we are short on time, so please keep your questions as questions and keep them brief and hopefully uh, ask questions with brief responses. Thank you, Mr. Brady, for uh, being here with us uh, today. Uh, I'm going to ask a very basic question. Uh, why do we need a central bank? 
Excuse me? Why do we need a central bank? Uh, might the economy function better uh, if uh, the markets were determining interest rates and the quantity of uh, money and credit in the economy rather than having a central planning agency uh, like the Federal Reserve uh, uh, making a mess of things? Well, the Constitution obviously gives the Congress the right to, to coin money and the value, regulate the money and the value thereof. I can't think of anything worse than having Charles Schumer and uh, Nancy Pelosi determining monetary policy and the value of our coins in America. I do think it's important to have a central bank. I think a very clear mandate in which we hold them accountable for it uh, is the right solution. And, and I believe in this single mandate uh, because inflation deflate and deflation are so damaging the economy. Inflation steals from your pocket pocketbook. Deflation steals your job. I think setting that stable uh, role for the Fed and monetary policy going forward, protecting the value purchasing power of the dollar over time, achieves what I think you want to achieve, which is uh, a different Fed than what we have today and a, a far less intrusive Fed than what we have today. We have a question over here. When you speak of stable could you prices... Could you wait for the microphone so that we can... Thank you. When you speak of stable prices, do you mean zero inflation or uh, like 2%? Yeah, we leave that to decision to the Fed. And we're not taking weak dollars, uh, strong dollars. We're talking stable dollars over time. And it is going to fluctuate. But it, if, again, you're looking over that purchasing power over time, I hate to keep repeating, that's the foundation for economic growth. That's the certainty businesses can build upon and invest upon. Uh, I think, you know, at this point, um, you know, the United States is one of, I think, only two central banks in the world that have a dual mandate. All the others focus on price stability, or, or they prioritize it above the others. We're really a bit of an outlier. Uh, and so that's why, again, I continue to focus on that uh, purchasing power of the dollar. It's just powerful. Got a question here in the front row. Good afternoon, Congressman Brady. It's nice to see you again. Thank you. And thank you for your presentation. I believe it's very important that we get the history correct. And I think that blaming the current Fed for its policies uh, removes the possibility that this Fed has done much better than the European Central Bank and thereby our economy is doing better. I agree that price stability should be the only objective, and that means price stability both ways. We don't want deflation, but history ought to be clear that Alan Greenspan's thinking he had it all together is what produced a bubble that produced a great deflation. So we are in a significant deflation that has caused the Fed to do extraordinary things. And I've been advising them all the time in regard to commodity prices and the way back to a fair market. Can I pivot from your point to what uh, 
what I hear on Capitol Hill as I talk to other policymakers, as, as we hope to make this review of the Fed uh, and reforms bipartisan, uh, is that a lot of lawmakers don't want to look any year past 2007 or 2008. You know, their argument to me is that we need the Fed to have all the power possible so it can react to um, financial crises such as this. Um, I credit the Fed with playing a key role in, um, in um, stopping the panic, you know, and in, in beginning to stabilize um, the financial system. But since then, lawmakers, at least my view in Washington, too many have abdicated their responsibility on fiscal policy to the Fed. In other words, as Chuck Schumer and others have said, you're the only game in town. Well, the truth of the matter is um, they're trying to do too much, not capable of achieving it. Um, uh, they're creating more uncertainty, I believe, in the market today. And I've yet to find a business, big or small, who says to me that I'll start hiring if only the Fed would provide more liqui liquidity or have a lower long-term interest rate, which, by the way, is lower than in a 70-year period. It's these other uncertainties that are in the way. And so, to your point, um, there's a real reluctance to look to the Fed's role, macroeconomic monetary role in inflating this bubble. Uh, you're right. Now, as tempted as it would be to continue, we do need to get the uh, chairman back for a vote. I failed to mention, since we didn't have time to talk about his bio, that he has other important responsibilities, such as chairing the subcommittee on health, on ways and means, and we do have an Obamacare vote coming up. And I know the congressman is going to go make a statement right now on the floor of the House. So you can continue to hear him there. Uh, I want to thank you all and let him get out and then welcome the rest of you up to our seventh floor uh, Freedom Garden for a couple of drinks. Right. Thank I wish I could join you. Thank you.